This is the Engineering Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Avi Noda. Today's episode is with Michael Galloway, who previously led delivery tools at Netflix and now leads platform at Doma. Michael shares the story of headwinds his team faced at Netflix and how they conducted over 100 developer interviews to realign their work with the organization. I learned so much from Michael in this episode, such as how to think about the strategic value of a platform team and why the most highly requested problems aren't necessarily the most impactful ones. Well, Michael, thanks so much for your time today. I'm really excited to talk to you. Yeah, me too. Thanks for, uh, thanks for asking me on. Yeah, well, I just listened to your talk from PlatformCon today, and I have to say, I really love the way you think about platform work and developer experience, because you're clearly someone who's sort of recognized the similarities between the challenges of internal-facing product work and external-facing product work. And it seems like you've really gone all in on sort of achieving mastery in this domain. So I understand... You know, your story, you spent a number of years working on platform at Netflix, where you had a bunch of big learnings. And now you've recently started a new role at Doma, where you've applied a lot of these learnings. So today, I'd love to first start with your experience at Netflix, so then kind of tie it back to what you're working on today. Yeah, great. Platform engineering, just as a high level, it's a super interesting space. Anybody that looks at the hype cycle... Uh, we'll see that it's definitely on the early stages of rising, uh, and there's uh, you know a whole lot of interest in this space, and I and I'm excited by that. Yeah, so my journey uh, in platform engineering, uh, I had bits and pieces throughout my career, but it really took off at Netflix when I had the opportunity to move into delivery engineering there. And delivery engineering is part of the platform engineering or at at Netflix platform at Netflix roughly is two major organizations. It's productivity and it's the infrastructure organization. Uh, there is some changes that have happened since then, of course, where data uh, also has a footprint as well. But for the most part, it was that way when I was there. So I was part of the productivity organization focused on delivery engineering, which meant largely the product that most folks associate. Spinnaker. So managing teams that worked on the Spinnaker product and really bringing about kind of the next generation of uh, solutions when it comes to delivery. Um, one of the bigger projects that we were leading uh, near the, my, the end of my time there was a project called Managed Delivery, which um, I believe the domain still exists, managed.delivery. During that time that I was in productivity there, um, we did explore a lot of concepts that I'm kind of excited that we'll be able to talk about today in relation to how you understand what your customers need. Um, this was a big problem for uh, Netflix and I think with uh, most platform organizations where you end up uh, really focusing on the things that you know are problems or believe are horizontal problems, but how you see those problems may not be how your customers see those problems. And certainly not necessarily they will see those uh, the priority of those problems in the same way. So it's an interesting challenge. Most of what I know about platform engineering really grew from that experience there. And so when I brought it over to Doma to really help lead the shape of the platform engineering organization at Doma, um, I was able to leverage a lot of the a lot of what we learned there at Doma. You mentioned Spinnaker and I'm familiar with it, but for those who are listening, can you just quickly describe what Spinnaker is? Yeah, so Spinnaker uh, started off as uh, really an open source project between Google and Netflix 
I want to say as far back, I want to say it was around 2014, maybe 2015. I'd have to check the exact times. But really, it was a way to present continuous delivery more accessibly for engineering. So by that, it meant it really introduced an interface that focused on providing pipelines as a first-class experience. Uh, and so you could assemble your workflow just through the use of a very visual UI experience um, that was, like I said, pipeline-based. That made it much easier for people to visualize, conceive, uh, uh, implement uh, delivery workflows. Because it made it easy to do that, it allowed us to do things that were historically more complicated, like introducing canaries uh, into your delivery workflows or introducing uh, more complex designs into your workflows because maybe your application needed it. And so it made being able to achieve a fairly complicated blue-green or at Netflix, because we were Netflix, called it red-black deployment strategies um, accessible to every engineering team without needing to be an expert in delivery. Got it. And so your team was primarily focused on this tool. You mentioned to me that there was some point during your time at Netflix where you sort of realized maybe things aren't working so well, right? I, I think you mentioned the orgas, sort of what is it that you do? So can you kind of dive into that eureka moment where you realized something was out of alignment terms of your words. Yeah, it's a really interesting problem. So uh, when I was at Netflix, it was the first time that I had ever heard of the concept of you build it and they will come as it applies to as applies to a platform organization. I'd heard this in the past in, in relation to products, uh, but it's a common pitfall that can happen where teams uh, get so focused on a set of problems that they start going heads down for months or even quarters and nobody outside of the platform organization, sometimes even other teams within platform, aren't really clear why they're working on this or what they're trying to achieve or what the problem is. This became an issue at Netflix primarily because teams had asks that we were saying no to because we didn't have bandwidth for it. And it wasn't specific to delivery engineering or anything. This was a, a platform engineering challenge. And different teams did balance this in different ways. But nevertheless, there was it got to points where our other stakeholders in the product engineering organizations uh, didn't understand why it's taking us so long to implement X. A good example of this was a, a thing called feature branches that took us a long time to come out with a strategy for, which has to do with just as a technique to enable engineering teams to do fast feedback on their development workflows. These were asks that went unanswered for a long period of time. So once that started to build up, you started to get a lot of pressure from other parts of the organization saying, you know, what are you guys doing then? What are you here for? And what, what value do you provide? And that was, that hit a really eye-opening moment within the platform organization where we realized that there is this big disconnect between these sets of asks and what we're actually delivering and how we're communicating value. And so when we first tried to tackle it, we thought, well, maybe we just need to communicate our value better. And then we realized over time that, nope, it wasn't about our communication. We can communicate to the day's end, but if we're talking about things that don't matter to them, they're not going to listen to it. They're not going to hear it. It's, it's going to be hard to connect those dots. And so what ended up happening was we basically started to follow an approach that really was uh, defined in um, this book called Customer Driven uh, Playbook. and what that essentially is, is it's a, it's a framework for gathering insights and input, basically data. What do your customers care about? What is their world like? Gathering all of this information, identifying uh, problems, 
proposing hypotheses to solve those problems and then proposing solutions to address those problems. And throughout that, that life cycle, you are constantly engaging with your customers to validate that, yes, this is a meaningful problem. Yes, this is a, uh, this is a, a solution that, that resonates with them. And so throughout the whole process, the value you're providing becomes uh, uh, is, is obvious and is connected to what they they need from you. That's so interesting. I'd love to zoom in to kind of this journey from point A to point B, the moment where sort of the existence of your team was challenged or at least questioned to this adoption of a different approach. First, I'm curious to ask, when you mentioned that there were questions around what is this team even doing? Was that a result of just complete, was there downward pressure on the business to cut costs? I'm just curious kind of where that pressure came from. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, part of it is when you have uh, organizational changes that occur in different parts of the business, lack of progress in certain areas or work that's done on the product engineering sides that people say, why are we the ones doing this? This feels like this should be a platform owned project. All of those start to build up the frequency at which those questions get asked. And when you have leadership changes, we had some leadership ch- uh, changes that, that forced us also to, to kind of reevaluate uh, you know, what our purpose here is and, and what we're trying to accomplish. That's when I think we started to really realize Hey, we, we actually don't have a lot of great answers. When we go into the room and we start talking to leaders of other organizations, it doesn't feel like the things that we're talking about are connecting with them. And you can sense a frustration. There's X number of tickets that haven't been addressed yet, or there's X number of questions or open asks. Um, and so I think it wasn't like there was one cataclysmic event, um, but I would say that it was a, a sequence of leadership changes, as well as organizational adjustments that really brought this to a head. The catalyst, I think, for us to approach it from the customer-driven perspective, though, was a decision that was made to bring in uh, product management into the platform organization. And so once product management became a concept in platform, that's when all of a sudden this idea of, hey, we need to actually treat platform like a product became more obvious and became more apparent. And and, uh, uh, and then we learned how to do it uh, effectively. I would say that we didn't feel like we had necessarily um, uh, something we could borrow from somebody else. So we ended up just trying to pick up uh, and figure this out and evolve our approach. That's really interesting. So to be blunt, it sounds like your customers were frustrated and perhaps your kind of roadmap felt in disalignment or disconnected from their needs. And so you brought in product management and you mentioned you had to learn as a platform group sort of how to be customer driven. So what did that look like? So this book, The Customer Driven Playbook, I've heard about it. Was this just a book that was on every product manager's bookshelf at Netflix and they just said, hey, here, you know, the rest of you engineers read this? Like, where did that book come from? And did your whole team read it? Tell me more about what that sort of learning process well, yeah, actually, we were all given copies of it. We're essentially tasked. We assembled a working group of individuals across productivity and uh, took various roles in terms of driving the the process of getting definition around our the problems and uh, the solution definitions. I would say one other bit that maybe uh, is useful context as well 
is even before we really dove into the customer-driven aspects of it, we had some individuals that took on product management roles that had a good understanding of gathering context and customer pain uh, from their previous experiences. So part of this had to do with uh, the fact that they came from the product engineering organization. So they brought some of those grievances into our organization. And I think that that also helped provide light on, hey, this is an issue that we should be taking a look at. When that happened, some of those individuals actually ended up driving, uh, I think, what was the most impactful piece to this entire journey, which was going and starting to do deep dive customer interviews, literally recording an hour-long conversation with an engineer and diving into questions like, tell us about your working environment. Tell us about the tools that you like to use. Tell us what are the steps you go through when you want to create a new application. And really just getting an understanding of how they operate today. What are they doing? What are they working on? What is their feeling of pain? What is their environment work style like? To get context. And so these were recorded. uh, These were transcribed. And then we leveraged, I mean, there, I think there was a, maybe a hundred of them that were done. And we, a lot of us deep dove into those and we pulled out phrases and, and data and content and information and quotes from these to start collecting themes of areas that needed investment. And when we started to get that sense of, okay, here's some of the big items that are coming up. Discoverability is a problem. Clarity in terms of which tool I should use for what problem is an issue. The sprawl of services that we have um, is an issue. So some of these things started to pop up as themes. And I think once we had that information, then it started to become a matter of, of identifying frameworks that would be maybe helpful from this. Um, I was not directly involved in the, pro- in the decision around the, the customer-driven playbook approach that was brought in from the product management team. It absolutely uh, helped us uh, put shape to, now that we have all these signals, what do we do to move these into uh, areas of investment? It's really interesting to hear. I'm first of all curious to ask, I don't know how involved you were in those interviews, but you mentioned they were recorded. You mentioned you did about 100. So for others looking to employ the same practice, does the book have a pretty fixed sort of interview structure or template? Or did you, how did you design these interviews? It's a great question. So um, I will say I ended up repeating the same process when I came to Doma. I found it so immensely valuable to gather this context. And so when we did, we actually drafted an interview guide uh, based off of what we had done uh, with customer-driven uh, approach, which the customer-driven playbook does provide you some guidance and structure around this. We put together our own version of that at Doma, which is very pretty much very, very similar. I would say the way we did it at Netflix, maybe a little bit of adjustment. And so I do have a guide and a set of questions that I'd be more than happy to to share. You can conclude if you would like. The general takeaway here is these interviews are done in a, in a common way that you would normally see a customer research interview style. So it's very much uh, one interviewer with one interviewee. And everybody else is essentially, if anybody else sits in, Their cameras are off, they're muted, they're not allowed to directly engage, they're just in the background just to listen for context. Um, And if they have any questions, they can send it through Slack to the interviewer who may or may not decide to ask that question. Uh, I did actually sit in on a number of the the interviews. Uh, I did a few of them myself at DOMA. This format was extremely uh, effective in terms of 
establishing a conversation, which is really what you want. You want that conversation to happen with the engineer uh, and you want to make sure that your questions are all entirely focused around curiosity. You're not judging. It's an interesting approach there because you want to make sure that you're pulling out as much information as you can. And so you avoid things like, why did you do X? Why do you do Y? As opposed to how do you solve this? What are your biggest pain points? Or if you had a magic wand, what might you eliminate out of your uh, development experience that you wish could go away today or something like that? So you're really just trying to solicit a lot of this insight because you're going to analyze it later. What you're looking for is signals. You're not trying to change what somebody's doing today or try to uh, question their approach. They may not understand how to use your product and that's not their fault. That's yours. <laughs> uh, and so you want to encourage that insight. So you mentioned 100 interviews-ish, right? And probably more, I believe, after you left Netflix. But I mean, who were you having? NG Was it just product managers doing these interviews? How many weeks did it take to get through 100? How distributed was the work across the team, I, I suppose I'm asking? It's a great question. I absolutely think you, and we did this at Doma, we, uh, you want individuals within the platform team involved. Uh, in different ways. There's lots of different ways. One way is to be the actual interviewer. Another way is to be a note taker that's silently sitting there. And uh, you know you can schedule. There's lots of different roles that you can play in this process. At Netflix, yeah, it took uh, months, I think. It took several months. Uh, it's very hard to schedule these things. But you know, all of these conversations are immensely valuable. The big challenge we had when you're looking at 100 interviews that are an hour long each is it becomes uh, virtually impossible to have one person who can listen to all of them and gather that context. So even at DOMA, I think we did about 20 of them. We ended up then dividing up the responsibility of listening to the interview after the interview and condensing that down into summary takeaways and converting it essentially from a conversation into some structured metadata that you could use to start finding signals, right? Or uh, structured data, rather, structured information. This was a big problem at Netflix. We actually talked about tools or techniques that we could potentially use to do this more efficiently. We never really arrived at an answer for that. But so we ended up it's as human effort having to go through and, and really categorize the information, identify uh, uh, individual quotes that were relevant to different pain points and so on. First of all, I love that practice you shared of having sort of involving team members in different ways. They might not be the interviewer, but you had them maybe be the note taker, for example. So I, I love that suggestion. I was also chuckling to myself because I've done qualitative research. And as you mentioned, the process of coding interviews into sort of structured data is intensive. And I was going to ask you if you had used some tool for that, but it sounds like it was just human effort. I mean, as Netflix, you know, sometimes I think uh, there's a mystique about Netflix as this company that just, uh, you know, can throw a powerhouse of machine learning at whatever. And and in truth, I suspect that we probably could have encouraged some team to jump on it and, and spend a hack day trying to figure something out. But the reality is, is um, I think there's no substitution for actually having people listen through it and, and identify this information. And the other reason besides it just being really hard to do that programmatically is the person listening to the interview and categorizing this information often will have come out of that experience with a completely different view of the world because all of a sudden they're hearing things that they say, oh my God, I had no idea that this was difficult for them. And they might find themselves screaming at the screen, why didn't you just push the button? It's up at the top right. 
But the thing is, is that they walk out of this realizing, I thought that it was so easy to use our experience. It's not. I thought that their problem was A and it's actually B. And so really what this does is it actually causes folks to come through with a much better understanding of what our customers care about. They become more passionate customer advocates and they're much more empathetic when customers come back into channels later and express a frustration because they've they've actually now really heard uh, how what they've been working on uh, interacts with the lives of our engineers and developers. I love that observation about the value of that just face-to-face, right? Experience sharing, if you want to call it. So I'm curious to know, you you went through this process at Netflix and clearly sounds like it had a big impact on the way you viewed how platform work should be approached. So you then started this new role at Doma. Tell me, how have you sort of applied these principles at Doma and also just share a little bit about the company and the definition, sort of your charter uh, with your new org there? Yeah. Well, Doma is in, uh, it's a prop tech company in the home closing space. Uh, it really is focused on uh, anybody that's bought a house or, or has gone through the home ownership process, I'm sure it can relate to the absolutely atrocious and complex process that a home closing process looks like. Uh, emailing off uh, highly sensitive documents and uh, hoping everything lines up and then uh, rushing to get it all signed and uh, you know, it's a very stressful time in everybody's life. And so DOMA is focused on making that a much more modern and automated approach, really driven by uh, lots of, of modern technology, which is applied to a hundred year old industry. So it's, it's an interesting space. I'm a big fan of disrupting areas that really need disruption. And this one's definitely one of those areas. So platform, yeah. So you know, coming over to the platform engineering organization, when I joined Doma, there was a set of teams uh, that were focused on uh, platformy kinds of concepts. So developer experience, uh, there was a team focused on that. There was a team focused on uh, cloud infrastructure and some of the early designs of our Kubernetes layer in, in Azure. We had a, an early uh, a product security team and a, a central test automation or quality automation team that provided frameworks for teams. It was an interesting combination. The, the thing was, is that when I arrived, you know, even though these teams all were adjacent to each other, there wasn't a clear understanding of what platform is here for. And so one of the things I, I talk about in my talk is specifically this challenge that when platform is, it lacks a clearly articulated purpose and a clear focus as an organization, not from the individual teams, but as an organization, what ends up happening is uh, you end up having either missing expectations from customers because they expect something because they think it sounds like it should be a platform thing. It shouldn't be theirs. And or you effectively get into the more nefarious situation, which is uh, when you're in front of a senior leadership or a CTO and they're not really clear why you have the number of engineers you have in your organization. What value are you providing? You know. To them, you're not delivering on a feature or a product necessarily. What are you actually doing? So frankly, this is a, was a small example of the same thing that in some ways was happening at Netflix. And so when I saw it, it smelled very, very similar to that. So we took the same approach that we did there, which was our start of our journey of really clarifying uh, you know, who we are and the value we provide. I'm curious, I mean, you described the process at Netflix of doing those customer interviews, and it sounds like that's one of the first things you did at Doma. Was it 
as intensive? I mean, was it, again, a multi-month sort of effort or what sort of flavor of it did you execute on at DOMA? I mean, this first step of gathering this information, these customer interviews, is something that you don't want to rush. First of all, it's new for lots of folks, especially in the platform space. They don't necessarily typically do this kind of activity. Uh, So I think when you're looking at rolling something like this out, you should have an expectation that this will take at least a month, maybe two, depending on how many folks you decide to interview and and how you establish this. There's playbooks now. I mean, like I mentioned, the, the docs I have can help. That book is is useful as well. But at the end of the day, you still need to get the folks that are going to run this together. You need to connect them with why you're doing this and, and practice doing it a little bit so that you get quality interviews. It took us, I think, about, I want to say about two months it did for us from the, we need to do this to we've completed all of our interviews. It's just because these things take a little time for folks to be effective at. I'd love to know as someone who's never spent this much time interviewing internal customers, I'd love to hear just some of the raw learnings. Like, What did you hear when you went into this organization and started asking developers about their experience? Yeah. So one thing that was a very interesting insight. So at Netflix, it spin up of a new application or a new service. That was a common activity that people did. So if you had an idea, you used a tool, an internal CLI tool called Newt. You Newt init, uh, and you would some application type, right? I'm doing a JavaScript uh, backend service or something like that. And and so then it would scaffold everything up. It would it would set up a, a, a rudimentary pipeline in Spinnaker. It would put the footprint into uh, GitHub and and set up all the configuration, basic configuration you needed. And so once you did that, uh, you essentially had a skeleton application that you were you know, a hop, skip, and going to jump away from just being able to push and have it get deployed to some kind of staging environment, essentially, more or less. That's how it, it usually worked. So it literally meant you went from idea to some running code within minutes, maybe maybe 15 minutes, all depending. So one of the questions we asked in, at DOMA in our questionnaire was, how long does it take you to create a new application? And the vast majority of teams that we talked to, individuals, said, well, I haven't had to create a new application in, in months. And uh, you know, I, and I think the last time I did it, it took two weeks and I had to talk to XYZ individuals. <laughs> <laughs> and it was fascinating to hear this because that had, was just not a problem that people had to solve here at DOMA. And it took a lot for me to kind of chew on that because my fundamental understanding as to how do you evolve something was based on the idea that you could start a new application and roll with it. So this was a very interesting insight. And once I found that out, it led me to more conversations after the interviews okay, when you have new functionality that you need to implement, where does it go? How do you make that decision? Many teams at that time were following a pattern of just adding that functionality to existing services, which can be a problem uh, depending on how teams want to evolve. The bigger issue is if they wanted to spin up a new application, in their minds, it already took two weeks. So gosh, even if it was a good idea, even if I should put this into a separate microservice, like I don't really want to because that's a big lift. Two weeks, that all of a sudden revealed an interesting insight that if we had just asked all of our teams, hey, what do you want us to work on? That might not have been something that they would have brought up. But if we had asked 
hey, when you want to roll out a new idea, when you have something new that you want to put out there, how would you make that happen? Even if they knew it should go into a new service, that would be a big lift and a big barrier if they decided to do it. So it became clear that doing that kind of work, simplifying that workflow, had the potential to add a lot of value for the business because it was a path that they were unable to take. And many of them actually could make sense to them to do it and they couldn't do it easily. So it was very helpful to get that insight. Thanks so much for sharing all that insight. That sounds like an enlightening experience for you as you join the company. You just touched on something that I found really interesting, which was you mentioned that, you know, had you just asked developers across the company, what's the number one thing you want us to work on or fix? It might have been different than what your interviews led you to discover as probably being a more important strategic problem. So how do you think about that today? It's a great question. And um, I'm glad you brought this up because a mistake on thinking of what these interviews are for is to take these and immediately translate them into a backlog of asks. I would actually generally say you already have that. You don't need to do these interviews, right? You have the support channels. Your customers are already making requests. You can go after all of those items if you want. But that's an anti-pattern from a platform organization standpoint. If you just run after a list of asks that come in from your support channels, you have no strategic benefit. You are just chipping away at immediate pain. And the only way that you can help that organization scale is by purely adding more people to your platform engineering organization to handle more of the backlog, right? But what you actually want is a situation where your platform is looking for opportunities to eliminate whole classes of work. That's how your platform organization can scale sublinearly to the rest of your engineering organization, which is exactly what your target should be. Um, and so when you are listening to these interviews, you're not necessarily looking for the, the, the surface signal. I don't like X. Y is painful. What you're looking at more is about how they are solving their problems. What are they doing? What is their workflow like? Most of the time, engineers, especially after they've been at a place long enough, have developed workarounds and scripts and solutions to solve the most immediate pains, right? And then the rest of them, the dent in their foot from the pebble in their shoe has just become a known experience and then they just move on. And so what you actually need to find is, oh my God, that pebble in their shoe is actually keeping them from running. That's why they're not running is because they have that pebble. And so the answer is we need to remove the pebble and then they have the, the impediments removed uh, from them to be able to run. It's hard to do that without understanding the activities and workflows that engineers actually need to do in order to innovate and get work done. That's where you really do need engineers to be involved in these interviews because they're the ones that, that can see that and say, well, wait, if they're having to do these 15 steps in order to get context for a production issue, that's going to keep them from checking those issues on a regular basis or from publishing as frequently because it's hard to debug in production. Um, and so you start to stitch together some theories around cause and effect for where the business needs to go based off of the insights that you learn from those interviews. Love that analogy. And I love everything you just shared on how you sort of approach this. You mentioned to me that at Netflix, you use the term leverage as a way of sort of thinking about where are those pebbles in the shoes, uh, if you will. Can you share your thinking or and you mentioned you have like a rough formula around that. How do you think about prioritizing or ranking these different potential investments? Right. This is a classic problem. So I remember when I first joined Platform Engineering, 
at Netflix, we had this all hands and we discussed this concept of leverage, right? Leverage, that's how we justify the things we work on. This is before we had product uh, managers involved and, and so on. And at a very high level, I think everybody understands this idea that if I spend uh, you know six hours of time or uh, six months of effort, it should impact some percent of the organization. I should be a force multiplier for the rest of the organization. Somehow that work should enable more out of the organization than I am putting into it, right? The challenge is, is that thinking about how to measure that, how to understand that is constantly up for debate because it's not an easily measurable thing. And so what I have generally uh, found in the experience that I've had at, at Netflix, as well as, uh, as well as at Doma, has to do with this idea that really leverage breaks down to a few different, kind of two different bits. Who is impacted, basically, how many people are impacted or how many teams are impacted and how often are they impacted by this work that you're about to do? So that's a bit of a leverage, but you multiply that leverage by the impact, right? And so impact is, is actually comes from a variety of different things. How much cognitive load are you alleviating? How much manual toil are you eliminating? And really the way that you can understand that depends on a few different factors like the engineering maturity that you have as an organization, the risk profile that you're willing to accept as an organization. And I would say the, the complexity that your organization exists in. Some of those are elements that as you start to put them together and you say, okay, if we work on this problem and this problem will be utilized by 50% of the organization and it alleviates the need to understand, I'll give you a good example of this, uh, uh, alleviate the understanding of uh, some security concept within the, uh, the business, that's a pretty impactful, that's a pretty meaningful thing to work on. It may not be something that any of those individual teams surfaces as the most important thing, but as a horizontal, it's very clear that there's value to invest there. I actually had exactly this problem at Netflix. There was a concept called security groups in AWS, which is a very nebulous concept for engineering. It's not something that just pops up in top of mind when they're setting up a new application. What should the security groups be for my application? Uh, we've abstracted so much of the, the underlying infrastructure and concepts from people that asking that question, it used to force them to actually deep dive down. I remember actually when I first joined, you actually had to provide IP address ranges um, uh, instead of even just talking about it at a security group level. I want my application A to be able to communicate with other applications within the security group. Now, uh, we abstracted a lot of those concepts so that you could get closer to saying, my application should be able to talk to this other application, which is really all that you think of when you're actually designing these things. You're not thinking about the underlying policies. So every team, every service had to define these. And if you didn't define them correctly, it either wouldn't communicate effectively or it would be too open, which was a security problem. But it's a one-time pain. You did it and you moved on. The problem is, is, is that every team, every person did that and had to deal with that every single time. And so that is, it's an example of a pebble. It's not keeping you from doing your work but it's something that knocks on you and knocks on you and knocks on you. So that's one way to factor, think about uh, prioritization is, is really looking at that. Uh, the other piece though, that I think a lot of platform organizations don't, sometimes they really get it. And sometimes I think they set it aside because it doesn't fit into the leverage equation. You need this other bit that I call strategic value. 
This one's a bit trickier because this one, the way I like to see it is leverage times impact as one part of the equation and then, you know, parens around that and then plus strategic value. And the reason why strategic value is outside of that and the reason why is because you need it as a variable that can, if it's large enough, it essentially equates to we should still do this activity uh, because there is certain things that are not high leverage that you absolutely want to do, right? So you could have a high impact, but if it only impacts one guy uh, and it's not strategic value, it probably is not worth it for a platform organization. That makes a lot of sense. Similarly, if you have high leverage and virtually no impact, very small impact, it may not be necessarily the right thing to do. You want really the high leverage, you know, medium to high impact uh, for it to make sense. The strategic value stuff, though, is where it's an opportunity for you to solve a meaningful problem, maybe for a small part of the business, but that that small part of the business is a strategic differentiator for the business. And we did this at Netflix too. This was an example. So a lot of folks associate Netflix with using canaries everywhere. Canaries are a mechanism during delivery where you slowly introduce the new version of your software into production traffic and then can detect whether or not after a period of time, that change was a good change to make or not. And if it's not a good change, you could roll it back. If it is, you can continue to progress it and move it out there. It's an experimentation platform, ultimately, is what it is. And I'm I'm already hearing all my uh, resilience friends there probably screaming at the screen. There's a lot more to it than what I just described, but canaries uh, are very useful for that from a delivery standpoint. That usage was not across the entire company because you don't get enough traffic across all aspects of the company, but it was very specific to a part of the business and it was very valuable to a part of the business. So should platform engineering focus on that? The answer is yes, because alleviating pain from that is a strategic differentiator and has a whole lot of value, even if the size of the audience that you would be impacting is maybe relatively small. So that's a, it's a factor that you, you have to consider in your overall investment equation. I love that. And you know, what's clear is that this is a tricky, nuanced problem to decide your strategy. And, you know, you mentioned you keep using this term strategic value. And I want to ask you more about that, because this week there was that announcement about Amazon building their new, I don't know if you heard about it, but a builder experience team to really focus on clearing away the muck, if you will, of uh, things that are slowing down their developers. but most product organizations have a set of sort of North Stars, right? Uh, whether it's sort of a MPS score or engagement or ARR revenue. For a platform team or a developer experience group, when you talk about strategic value, like how do you, what is the strategic value? So platform isn't an island unto itself, right? When you think about strategic value, it's not I think of it less as strategic value from a platform standpoint, and it's more about what the business sees as the most important outcomes that it needs to achieve. And so platform may need to focus on a part of the business and alleviate that uh, significant pain from a part of the business in order for that part of the business to be unlocked and be able to execute and run faster, which may mean that you don't strictly adhere to a pure horizontal vision or view of the world, but that you might have a mountainous landscape, if you will. Something where at cert for certain parts of the organization, you might 
have a higher layer of abstraction and you maintain that for that part of the organization because that part of the organization has a specific need that unlocks business value. So when I think about strategic value, I really more think about it as what are the VPs, what are the CTOs, what are the uh, you know directors, what are they talking about that needs to actually happen from the business? And what are the problems that they're, the tentpole problems that their organization deals with or the, the, the challenges that they deal with? And so understanding that within uh, the space allows you to find ways to provide maybe a unique platform level solution to those. There's two different ways that can happen, actually. At Netflix, we had this concept called local central teams, where you actually had a platform-ish team embedded within those organizations that might do some of that uh, closer to the domain platform work. And in theory, that work could potentially graduate to the more horizontal platform layer. Uh, depending on your organization, that may be a, a viable strategy. At the end of the day, the real point is having a platform focus on verticals that need uh, higher levels of abstraction, it shouldn't preclude your platform organization from thinking about how to engage in that. Even if it may mean that you do graduate, say, something from that local central team that may still not quite spread horizontally. But by them graduating it to your platform organization, you unlock them to even raise that layer higher or provide more services or value. There's opportunities there, I think, that you have to, you can't ignore. If you're too strict, let's just say it that way, if you're too strict on what you will and won't do, and you are, are ignoring what the business needs, you end up falling into a trap as an organization, unless you are delivering overwhelming value. One of the things I've taken away from this conversation is this when you talk about strategic value the importance of it really starts with the business like you mentioned it's not just what is the strategic value of the platform team it's what does the business care about which areas of the business or aspects of the business do the leaders of the business want to amplify and want to accelerate and that is where the value of platform is is to actually help drive acceleration or you know, force multiplication, as you called it, or leverage to improve those areas. So I really love that advice. Yeah, 100%. Um, just to kind of bookend it, I think if you think about it from the customer interview conversations, even at the beginning, when you asked, where did this come from at Netflix? I think one of the, the key points is senior leadership in other parts of the business also were not clear what value platform was necessarily providing. So uh, you can't forget uh, the business. And it's easy in platform to fall into that trap unintentionally. You really are trying to do the right thing, but you're disconnected from the business uh, needs. So yep, 100%. Well, Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was, uh, this was fun. 